Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. To another journey on Nightlight. If you're like me, <clears throat> were, were you a little kid watching the Saturday afternoon monster movies? I loved the endless mummy movies and them and <clears throat> all the other anti-nuclear weapon uh, movies. Then there were all the 40s uh, movies with... Uh, all the monsters, Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, Lon Chaney, and you can even throw in Abbott and Costello getting in the action too. Uh, you have the William Castle shows like House on Haunted Hill. That that one really scared me when I was like seven or so. I no, so, so it is, I don't know, in college. And I was like, oh, why'd that scare me? But Anyhow, you get, uh, you know, the, uh, later on Saturday night, you get the Chili Billy Scare Fests uh, going on with the uh, Hammersmith Studios, uh, Christopher Lee Dracula. Uh, you know, those were some of my favorites. Um, about a dozen years later, I got into the, not so much the monster movies, uh, they were more of like the psychological thrillers like M and uh, some of other Fritz Lang's German expressionist films and, and also put in it, uh, their the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So that's basically my resume to be a late night radio host. But I I don't think I'm the only one who had or has a similar background, but it helped to relate to tonight's book. Um, A leading paranormal investigator and host of his own, well, co-host of his own show, Into the Outer Realms and Red Thread Collective, lecturer, 
Joey Medea is with us for, I think, about the third time. And Joey's lovely wife, Tanya, has her own publication, uh, Living the Intuitive Life. And they have co-authored Roommates from Beyond, Watch Out for the Hallway, and Joey has his own pirate series. And tonight we'll be reviewing the really uh, captivating Three Gothic Doctors and Their Sons. Um, and maybe Tanya could sneak in in the second hour. I don't know. She, she might be in her she shed on the phone plotting with the nefarious Julie about how to sabotage next week's show with a Mothman sighting. I, you have to watch out when the when they get together. Um, or it could be something about the mysterious, top-heavy, bearded lady from the circus will call in tonight. I, I, I don't know. It's interesting that both of them are not in the chat room. Anyhow, hi, Joey. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Uh, and you were right. It is for the third time. First time solo. Yeah, Tanya's otherwise engaged tonight, but um, she's here in spirit. Okay. Okay. If she happens to walk by to get something out of the fridge, uh, let her know <laughs> she's welcome to chime in. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, yeah, you're... Uh, three Gothic doctors and their sons, uh, covering what roughly 120 years of Gothic literature, and we you know, we, uh, we could probably extend it to you know right right up to today. You know, um, maybe um, once we lay down some of the foundations of your book, we can. Um, uh, make some modern links, but um, you have a really neat book. How did you come up with this idea of bringing all these famous literary doctors into one book? What was the inspiration? Yeah, so it was sort of necessity is the mother of invention. So this is in... 2014, and my theater company, Seven Stories Theater Company, we were in West Virginia at the time, and we had the opportunity to be the house theater company for Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in Weston, West Virginia, which I bet more than half of your audience know because it's um, it's one of the darlings of the paranormal shows. Every major oh. you know paranormal investigator has been there. When, um, when Sherry Brake was a guest, She gave us the ins and outs of the asylum. Yeah, it's quite an active place. Tanya uh, had a phantom ice pick lobotomy while she was there, which happened on one Mm. of the other shows after 
the fact. It was it was a nice corroboration. Not that that happened to her, but we were we were setting up in a wing to you know getting ready to perform, and she kind of wandered off to a place where these this is when it would you know it had first reopened. Now it's so you're talking um, about seven or eight years ago, and she went off by herself, and she she yeah she felt it, and it turns out it's something that happens there. We had weird things. We had a cigar roll off a table and snap in half like six of us watched it as it was falling to the floor um a makeup tube uh brand new was was opened and it was completely empty now maybe it was a malfunction you don't know but with everything else so it was a really active place so i wrote a series of shows and it was well what would go great in an asylum right in a former mental institution and I love those, everything you were talking about in your intro, from the Hammer films to uh, Fritz Lang, German Expressionism, Mm -hmm. Murnau, Caligari, all of it. And um, so Three Gothic Doctors is part of a larger series, which is four books now, called The Stanton Chronicles. The very first book in that series, Minor Confessions of an Angel Falling Upward, really pays homage to almost everything that you were talking about. And I sort of had, I had played with Jekyll and with Moreau and Frankenstein. And what really fascinated me was um, there's sort of the, the horror element, but then there's also the Victorian and Edwardian English suppression that needs to come out somewhere. The rise of modern medicine coupled with industrialism. And I just thought, wow, to tell those three stories side by side has never been done before. And there are so many cool parallels. And if I could tie them together with one ambitious doctor who said, uh, you know, very much like Greek tragedy, that fatal flaw of hubris, which is what Mm -hmm. Walton is all about. I'm going to do better than the people who came before me armed with their knowledge and my own special thing. And he, you know, has, he has this mysterious nameless angel that talks to him throughout the book and guides him. So he believes that he he's on this divine mission. Um, but what he's really doing is usurping God, which becomes a really interesting topic. So, so I pitched it to them as one of the shows that I wrote and um, it debuted in 2014 was very successful. We brought it back in 2015. Um, and then I had an offer. Uh, the pandemic has really delayed things. But the musical has been expanded even bigger, which I've been working on. It's going to be produced in Los Angeles. It looks like November of this year now, but will also be filmed um, over several days and with a live audience and then cut together into a film for international streaming. So um, because it's just a it's just that, yeah, it's just a subject that captivates. I was hoping to be able to give you an exclusive about the details. Um, but some, the pandemic has made everything very difficult, um, from venues to actors to costs. So, um, but the announcement should happen in the trades pretty soon and I'll make sure you're one of the first ones to know the details, but it's pretty exciting. Oh, and and you had to have done a lot of prep for this book 
because you do have great recreations of scenes from uh, Frankenstein, the island of Dr. Uh, Moreau, and Jekyll and Hyde. You know, we'll, we'll get to uh, the Jack the Ripper stuff in a little bit. But, mm-hmm. you know, you uh, really read and examined the characters, the settings, the deeper meanings. You know, uh, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll be segueing into uh, Doctors Playing God uh, in just a few minutes. But, you know, you did a lot of work to understand the material before you, you even uh, put pen to paper. Yeah, so they were books that I've loved from the time that I was young. So, you know, when you would go to the Woolworths or the Five and Dime, you could get, for a couple of dollars, you could get, um, you know, these books because they were in in the public domain or near so, even when I was yeah. a kid. So they were just books. You know, I have numerous editions of each one. Uh, when I was in college, I did a paper on Frankenstein. Uh, something about Jekyll and Hyde was I had been talking to a colleague, and he's like, you know, Jekyll and Hyde is an addiction novel. It's what it's really about. And I was like, oh, of course that makes sense. Robert Louis Stevenson was so sickly for so long, he would create these medical cocktails to try to help him. Um, and that really kind of broke it open for me, that was a whole nother aspect of the, you know, they're just almost like nested metaphors in these stories. So I love mm-hmm. to do book reviews. I was an English and theater major in college. Um, I love to teach writing. I'm a story analyst. I'm a screenwriter. So I love to deconstruct uh, genre pieces. Right. And so it was great fun. It has been great fun because when I decided to do the novel, I have to tell you why I wrote the novel last year. Um the first book in this series um, with with the protagonist, who's Judah Philemon Stanton, the um, journalist, was supposed to be my Sherlock Holmes book, which I've just about finished first drafting. And when it came time last winter to start that book after two years of research, watching every Sherlock Holmes out there, rereading all 64 stories, doing tons of research, um, I went absolutely cold at the thought of writing a Sherlock Holmes book. I just wasn't ready. So I was like, what am I going to do? I need to do a book and introduce this character, um, Stanton, because he's in the pirate books. And so I said, why don't I novelize the Three Gothic Doctors musical? And there just wasn't enough material from the musical to do a full novel and that's where it took me to what's the last third of the book, which we could get into with the serial killers in the 1930s and all of that in the murder house. Um, so, so, yeah, how this how this project came to life in all its different stages has been kind of unique. Okay, so let, you, know, you, you mentioned a couple of things. You know, we'll mm-hmm. – We'll come back to uh, them in uh, a few minutes. But uh, now let's get the uh, 
analysis of the story going with um, you know, how it opens up with the auction. Yep. Yeah, that, yeah, that, you know, I don't want to tell the whole, give away the whole story, but yeah, it's okay. Interesting way to um, get things going. So uh, tell us a little bit about the symbolism of that setting in the auction house. Right. So it is um, an homage to Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera, which opens up at, at an auction where a key piece triggers a memory. So it was a little different. But I decided to open it up with the auction because it was an introduction to how committed this man was. So it gave an opportunity for um, – he gets the journal of uh, Dr. Jekyll from Jekyll's lawyer, Utterson. And Utterson's niece comes to the doctor and tries to warn him. He doesn't want to hear it. The way that he um, buys his time, he has to have this thing. He has to outthink his competition. It shows how committed he is. So that was really important. And what better way to do it than um, to have him have a message that he ignores, because that's key to hubris. It's key to Greek tragedy. And also just to show how committed he is to getting this third item, um, which, you know, triggers his whole journey, a literal journey. So I'm very fascinated by Joseph Campbell's idea of the hero's journey. Uh-huh. So um, when he gets that third journal, then he really answers the call to adventure and travels to the island, to Moreau's Island. Uh, it's the second journal that he has, right, that he gets at auction. And then he goes to Moreau's Island to find the third mm-hmm. one. So so it, I think um, I felt like it worked that it set up, you know, the story. Yeah. So we're taken to the island of Dr. Moreau and... Walton um, and you know the captain are at odds we continue to see the oh you said described getting the journals as Walton's Commitment to what is destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, he, he and the captain of the ship um, really uh, have, have heated arguments before get, uh, getting to the island. And you know, once the story starts to unfold on the island. It, um, you make it a very chilling environment there. There's the um, Dr. Moreau's lab. You know, it's kind of like uh, you know, returning to uh, Jurassic Park, and you know you're kind of familiar with it, but yeah, you know, 
uh, the lab is boarded up and dusty. You know, just uh, all those like gothic characteristics. Um, but when you start introducing the characters remaining on the island, uh, that becomes it, – it, it's uh, very disturbing. I think you achieved the atmosphere that you were looking for. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So – the gothic genre, right, going all the way back to Castle of Otranto and and the early, early vampires and all, it is chilling. And it's what's interesting is all of these doctors are trying to bring forth life, and they're surrounded by death. They become knee-deep in the blood and gore of death. They're so tunnel-visioned into what they're doing. And um, there's parallels you know, politically and historically outside of science, but really inside of science to this commitment. I even think with the development of the A-bomb and Oppenheimer uh, was so committed that until he saw the Trinity test, he didn't realize what he had unleashed. And then he, you know, he pulled from the Bhagavad Gita, right? Um, I have come, I'm destroyer of worlds. And uh, it was so big a revelation to him. Uh, I Einstein saw it early on and, and, and had the warnings, and that's the difference. But we really latch on to these characters who just won't take the warnings. So not only does he have his assistant, Tom, there's the Portuguese captain who I became very, very fond of, um, mm-hmm. Gonzalo, who, um, because of his deep faith in God, seeing the danger and seeing the omen in the storm, so as the boat for the for the audience who haven't read it, um, Walton charters this ship to go to this Pacific South Pacific island, and um, the steamship captain. There's just a storm that makes no sense. It has to be an ill omen, and so they have this big. So all this is going on, right? He's broken his engagement with his fiance. He sacrificed all. It's a it's a very interesting trope. Members, we love to watch these cautionary tales. It's one of the best things about storytelling. So you have to be really careful not to deify these guys, not not to make it too, you know look too appealing. What's going on? So so breaking into that laboratory, which uh, Island of Doctor Moreau, people have said through the years of the development of the play, and now the play for L.A., which will be a film and the novel and all that. Island of Dr. Moreau is the least well-known of the three. So not everybody is um, familiar with that, but Moreau is the most godlike of all of them because he creates the laws and then he sort of creates a religion and a priest, the sayer of the law. He sees them as his children. That was the big thing for me when I was really thinking about, I would really like to do a gothic horror musical, like, how cool would that be? And I know this Hollywood special effects guy. We're going to be in an insane asylum. And it's really this idea that we bring forth something that we don't take responsibility for. 
Um, and this happens all the time in modern life with, you know, fathers who, who don't acknowledge their children or, you know, deadbeat dads is the uh, ugly term. I've had some experience with those um, in my personal life. And um, th- so that really resounded with me. So that's why it's three Gothic doctors and their sons. And Walton's so keen on, I'm going to do this. Because, you know, Mark, isn't it so striking and I don't know if it's a literary mistake. I almost feel kind of it is. But Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, Victor is so committed to creating this this being. But the minute the being opens its eyes, he freaks out. And he's like, you're, he you're a beast. And you're, yeah, and, and he berates him. He chases him out. He disowns him. He disowns his own creation. Uh, and that's very resonant to me. So the setting in which these guys build these labs around them, build these worlds around them, using technology and medicine and gadgets, but not really seeing the life and blood in front of them. That's that to me. That's what's so chilling about those stories. And and thank you. I'm I'm glad that that it conveyed. Um, you know, they're they're charnel houses, really. They're places of death. Those laboratories. And you, know, you, you just mentioned um, you know, these, a lot of you know these doctors aren't held accountable. You know, mm-hmm. see, see themselves as above the law. Um, it, with the characters uh, who survived years of um, Moreau being off the island um, and you know Walton being there um, yeah there, there does become what is it it's like a, a, a perversion of you know, the concept of some type of natural law, some slavery type thing. You know, hey, it's uh, you know, hey, you know, thanks a lot for doing all this stuff for me, but you know, go over there and you know, he, he he's uh, uh, snapping the whip. Uh, you just feel really uh, discuss if Walton wants to see himself as a a god. How? But he's you know really abusing his um, creations. Right. You, you really feel a lot of pity for um, the 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 uh, character like uh, the lawsayer, mm-hmm. and the, you know, he's repeating. You know, uh, the sayer uh, want, wants to express his dissatisfaction with the treatment and. Yeah, you know, just kind of uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, 
torments him about, oh, say, hey, hey, buddy, don't don't forget to say, you know, that that one verse, and he you know, repeats it. Oh, you know, we must obey, you know, whatever yeah. it is. It, it, it's just he, he just seems to be marking his creations. Um, you know, I think he and. Yeah, I think that seems to be one of the commonalities of all these gothic doctors is they could have been these god figures that did something good for the world, but they went for personal glory or it brought about their own downfall. Right. Right. I mean, these are not stories with a happy ending at all. And it's, uh, yeah, it's using, it's using other people as a means to an end. I even, I even feel pity for Edward Hyde. Um, I really do. Uh, although I don't portray him in a favorable light, but he's all of the suppressed evil. Right, that's an inter to me. That's an interesting conversation where he says to to um, Henry Jekyll, "You're the gentleman. I do the things that you can't do. I go out and live life with rapt avidity. I love the language, you know, of that time, and um, and that and that's that's really it. That's what really kind of offends me is using other people to." Um, you know, to make your way, to step on their their back. And they are people. Edward Hyde's a person and, um, you know, morose creatures are a hybrid, but they're more people than they are animals, at least until they, you know, start to revert. Because like you said, it's not the natural order for us to muck around, which, you know, you had mentioned we could talk about modern stuff. Um, as we're going out and selling this musical, as the producer's been getting investors and doing all the promotion that, that goes with mounting a major show like that in L.A., it's this idea of these are things that we're grappling with right now. Um, you know, even a, a certain virus may have been created in the lab, um, but but we have, you know, ge- genetic cloning and DNA manipulation and all these all these different kinds of things. Um, more and more colleges are teaching transhumanism. So again, using technology to alter the human form to create a hybrid. And that kind of stuff, frankly, uh, scares me. So Three Gothic Doctors and the whole really Stanton Chronicles series is a way for me to kind of work through my own fears about, you know, what are we using our knowledge? What are we using this amazing human brain for? Is technology just addictive? Um, you know, uh, that's an interesting question to me. Is it just what's the next thing? What's the next faster phone? What can we can we make a human being where we implant a chip so that they don't need their phone anymore, but they can get direct downloads? Um, so I think it's these stories are more relevant than ever, I believe. Yeah, well, just a week ago, uh, gain-of-function research was, well, the headlines for a couple days. Um, Why do we need to 
uh, now if you can splice bat DNA to some kind of cold virus and see if it can affect humans. Uh, Why don't we do something a little bit uh, more helpful to other people like, I don't know, cure cancer? Mm -hmm. How about stop, uh, you know, like really bad hay fever that I have right now? Now, why... What does you know this gain of function research really do to benefit people? Right, right, and these are the questions you know we need to. And I'm distrustful of authority and things like that by nature. So, so this is kind of like I said, this is kind of my working through extending the cautionary tale. That's because um, Frankenstein was the late 1700s, so we're talking over 200 years of these cautionary tales, um, mm-hmm. and more and more of this stuff is more and more of this stuff is coming. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, even some of the medication. Right, there's been so many horror stories about this, uh, and I can't remember the name, which maybe is just as well. Um, I don't know if it's called Chantrix. It's the uh, for people who want to quit smoking. Um, they take this and they have terrible suicidal thoughts and horrible, horrible depression. It's a different form of Mr. Hyde in a way. You right. know, the disease, you know, the cure is sometimes worse than the disease. So, so the topics become really, um, relevant, but there's nothing like that Victorian Edwardian atmosphere. There's just something about, I mean, if you watch Netflix and you watch, Amazon and even HBO or popular movies. It's such a visually rich, um, the atmosphere is so amazing, that gothic atmosphere, you know, with the coal smoke and the cobblestones and the bullseye lights and the, you know, the Bunsen burners and the electricity mm-hmm. machines. Yeah, so. Well, okay, since... Uh... Use uh, use of language. Um, for example, in page fifty-six, you have partial uh, pay homage to Milton, which is. Heavily influenced, or had a heavy influence on Frankenstein, um, yeah. or I could, I don't know, I could be also writing about uh, uh, some the end. If you're listening to a lot of uh, the Doors while you were writing this, but um, <laughs> probably so. Yeah, yeah, I kind of picked that up. Um, but it, 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 the did, did did you write that poem? I did. It's actually it's the only um, it's the only set of song lyrics from the musical that I incorporated into. Well, no, that's a lie. 
that I did in poem form. Um, there's a conversation between Jekyll and Hyde at a crucial moment in their relationship that is basically the lyrics from the song. It's a duet, so it was easy to turn it into lyrics. But this um, Hatred Made of Me a Friend is uh, a song which I actually got to sing in the debut. Of the, I played Frankenstein, Sayer of the Law, and Mr. Hyde in the original musical. And um, I just thought that these lyrics were powerful enough. And some some of it is Mary Shelley's words. Some of it is my own. Mostly it's my own. But um, but the monster, the monster, see, we fall into old patterns. Um, Frankenstein's creation uh, lear- learns how to read and reads yep. all of these things. I mean, it's right out of the book. And, of course, you know, the universal, I have my uh, – I have my um, Boris Karloff uh, Frankenstein uh, figure right here about two feet away from me where I'm sitting. But, um, you know, he's nonverbal, and oftentimes he's nonverbal. But it's so much more chilling when we have someone who's physically unappealing but can talk so eloquently and recite verse and has such a big heart and wants to love and, uh, you know, we don't judge a book by its cover, right? We we all do it, especially when we were in school. A new kid comes to school and their clothes look kind of old and, you know, their hair isn't washed and all of a sudden we're making all these assumptions about who they are and don't get to know them. So so that's a huge – that's that's another thing that's sort of ubiquitous in the world. So, yeah, so this is actually um, lyrics from one of the songs from the musical. Okay. Oh, I, I thought it it was um, very uh, compatible with Frankenstein's creation, mm-hmm. and you get those lines that you know really st- yeah. If you just look at a Milton poem, you know, his, his, just one line, you know, just you can tell. Okay, that's that was written by Milton. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, you, know, you, you, you do a really nice job of keeping in context with one of the uh, authors who inspired. Um, mainly uh, Mary Shelley, but you know, you, you also mentioned you know, uh, you know, Byron and Blake were also big Milton fans as well. Get yeah. in the vast, unending darkness of the void. Um, I like that. You know, nice opening to the poem. Thank you. But, and you know, if you think of Blake and and and. Uh... Shelley and all those guys, that's a direct line of ascension, like you said, to Jim Morrison. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very, very much so. And I'm a huge fan of Jim Jim Morrison's poetry. I have all all his poetry books. I've read them numerous, numerous times. Um, And that's where his heart really was, you know, as a poet. Um, So, yeah, but thank you. Yeah, that's the one that... um, You've read the canon and the quill book. So in the first book and now in yep. the third one that I'm finishing the first draft for, um, I've written song lyrics 
um, that are incorporated. Uh, you know, because uh, pirates like to sing, so and it's a good way to convey information. But for but for the creature, for lack of a better you know term, uh, Frankenstein's creation, uh, when he comes back and he thinks that he's going to impress Victor because he can talk and he can read and Victor finds, you know, what does Victor say? He says, oh, what this is even a bigger affront to God that you dare to recite, you know, these poets and, you know, learn to read, like, how dare you? Uh, that's profound. That's profound cruelty. And, you know, the pirates sang because they were drunk, but... The, the creature. <laughs> no, no. That's not true. Just the opposite. Um, singing is a good way. No, you know, some songs are different than others, but a lot of the sea chanties were. Uh, it's a good way to get everybody working in unison uh, as no, you're pulling I, I, up I, I sails know. or you're. Yeah, but um, no, but there's plenty of drunken singing too. <laughs> Little off color but, those songs. <laughs> but but um, you know you're. Uh, line. I, I must have a companion. Hatred is no friend. Another's love to help my soul ascend. He will make my companion, or I'll make misery his last and only friend. Okay, yeah, uh, that's really a, a great expression of what the creature is wanting in his life or um, you know Walton's going to have some problems if he doesn't yeah yeah and that's one fundamental um, change that I made from the original Frankenstein is the circumstances around what Victor why Victor destroys the female companion before she's finished. Mm -hmm. So in the book, I actually have her come to life and it's what she says to him that leads him to destroy her, which I'm not, I mean, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Mary Shelley, obviously, but I think that in our modern times, having the woman speak for herself was immensely um, necessary. Uh, to give the woman a voice so she wasn't just a passive tool of Victor's, you know, ego, but to, to have her speak to him. Uh, and, and he can't handle it. He can't handle what she has to say to him. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, in the book, um, Elizabeth doesn't do it, not really. So I made Elizabeth a little stronger, too. Not much, because you have to honor the time period um, and some of the strictures there. But um, but I thought it was it was all right and good that the that the female creature should speak up for herself, you know. Mm -hmm. And and speaking of um, like where of Victor. Uh, destroyed his uh, second creation. Um, mm -hmm. Your use of settings is on a lot of 
islands, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's pretty interesting. You, you know the um, bad guys, you know, uh, with our um, serial killer show uh, a couple weeks ago. We yeah, have another one coming up where you know the bad guys need their uh, privacy. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of these settings for for your novel are on these uh, islands, like you know the Orkney Islands. You know, that, that that was actually in the original uh, Frankenstein, and you yep. get the Isle of Man. And uh, don't get me started on Jeff the Talking Mongoose from the Isle of Man. Uh, yep. And then, then there's. Uh, yeah, you know, the island of Doctor Moreau. So you know, there, there's uh, several uh, uh, you know, stops at in Ireland, uh, but you, know, you you do give us a lot of uh, background on the importance of Rouse. Uh, Rouse is very isolated. Mm-hmm. Island. Um, I like to have a house there. That's one of those yeah, places. Uh, uh, Maria and I uh, want to go there and build a house next to a, you know one of the cairns and start one of our prehistoric studies on the archipelago. But uh, that you know we'll save that for another story when she comes back. But. It, uh, you know, Rouse is, is a very isolated island, um, and all, all all the other places, South Pacific. You, you know, you, you're you're taking your readers on a worldwide uh, journey to these remote locations, just like Jurassic Park. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's twofold. Um, they're chased away to the remotest places in the world. Then they get to a place where it's very primal, where it's, um, you know, where creation can, can begin that it's, it's, um, and, and they're introducing technology into these places, which is kind of unnatural. So it, it has all these different nested layers to it. Plus they're just, you know, writing the pirate stories. That's, that's all about the islands. And, you know, my, my primary, uh, as you know, is uh, Angus McGregor, the nephew of Rob Roy. So, so mm-hmm. the Hebrides and um, the Lords of the Isles and the, you know the western part of Scotland is is so wild mm-hmm. and so primitive and lawless for so long. The you know Orkney and all of that. So they're they're a wonderful canvas to write on and and play some. You know, it's uh, place and problem dictate character. That's how I teach it. Those are the circumstances. Circumstances are how the place and the problem affect the character. And the more inhospitable the place, the more thorny the problem, the more it's going to reveal about a person's true character. So, um, yeah, it's too good to pass up. Yeah. And, you know, we've covered a lot of the 
evil intention or, or, or what became you know, really misguided um, ideas uh, by these doctors. Uh, you know, you do develop the assistant um, probably a few several uh, like Tom is one uh, mm-hmm. Costa you know could, could be seen as an assistant it, it, what role do they play in, in your book as well as in all the other gothic literature uh, and they it's, it seems like they always have try to bring the doctor back to uh, reality, doing good for mankind. Right. So they're so they're the characters. They become collateral damage. Um, in Frankenstein, you know, through Universal and you know the idea of of Igor, you know, the the lab assistant. Uh, but in the original book, it's um, Henry Clerval, who's who's a poet, and he's a sensitive, and um, and Frankenstein has colleagues, and Moreau is of course cast out by his colleagues. Jekyll has uh, Utterson, the lawyer, um, and his other friend who kind of becomes very sick and dies. He's so shocked about what what Jekyll is up to. So they really help us um, take the journey. They're the moral compass. And because they're horror stories, because they're tragedies, they become collateral damage, right? Victor is so up to his knees in blood. He suffers so much death. His his brother and his fiance and his best friend and and uh till he finally has to fight back and where does he go? He he goes to the you know, to the frozen north, a different kind of island. Um another sure. inhospitable yep. environment, right? So um so I kind of fell in love with Tom and Costa. They're two of my favorite characters in the book. I like Tom because he's an innocent. But he believes he gets sucked into the delusion, uh, which I think is very important because on a certain level, the reader should. On some certain level, hopefully, they're sort of rooting for Walton to have a better outcome than his three predecessors. Uh, You know, we want – I want Victor to do the right thing. No matter how many times I read the book, no matter how many times, you know, I watch the adaptations of the book, I want Victor to give the creature what he wants, the companion. It seems to me reasonable. It's a reasonable request. Hey, you just give me a companion who has to love me because no one's going to love her. We're going to kind of be stuck together. We'll go to, what does he say? We'll go live in a cave in some remote jungle and you'll never see us again. More isolation in the wild. And he can't, he can't do it. Um, you know, Moreau has um uh, the other doctor Montgomery uh who believed in him and journeyed to the island and now is paying the price uh people have a lot of problems with the John Frankenheimer uh Marlon Brando Val Kilmer uh right movie i like it quite that was a lot interesting. but but i think Val Kilmer he he uh 
Uh, Montgomery appears as a character in uh, the prequel to Three Gothic Doctors, which is Sherlock Holmes and the Mystery of M. I give him an origin story because how did this young doctor who was so idyllic and believed in Moreau's vision, how does he become this sort of mess of a man who's now doing Moreau's dirty work? So, so I really like to explore origin stories. Um, so I'm taking the opportunity to do that in this series too. Okay. You, one of, of course, um, one of the assistants wouldn't say this, but you do have a, a statement. How is it that you do not know it is my goal, as it has been from the start, to cure deformities and control genetics for the good of humankind? <laughs> A perfect race of beings. Yeah, a perfect race of beings devoid of all evil. Okay. Um, You you know, we will see, uh, you know, obviously, since your novel is set in 19, uh, starts off in 1929, and obviously Mm -hmm. there's. uh, you're being consistent with some of the uh, philosophies around the time. You know, we know yeah. who they would become. Um, but there is that uh, elitist mentality. Um, you know, going back, uh, you know, with uh, Mary Shelley's <clears throat> book. Um, aside from you know the 20th century European fascism that's developed, uh, you, you also had these secret societies in, in this book, and, and they do appear in your uh, pirate book. Yeah. That, that um, yeah. that's a um, something you know, you, you've developed in, as well as the uh, you know, you've covered it you know, with your research of. Uh, the Denver Airport show are groups like that really involved in such um, nefarious projects, or yeah, is it? Well, yeah, you know, a bunch, well, we a bunch of know. hype. Ugh. I think. You know, that's like a whole show into and of itself. But um, <laughs> I think um, we have nearly very another prop- hour. But yeah, yeah no, it, it, I, no, I'm happy to. I've been fascinated. Yeah, I've been fascinated for a really long time. So, yeah, let me try to parse out where I'm at with it. I think there is something to different groups. 
Uh, I think that there are true power groups nested in front groups, right? So the Freemasons, for instance, the advanced levels are where the action really happens. Where if you meet your typical Freemason, they're a business person the same as, uh, you know, I belong to the Rotary Society or the Knights of Columbus, any right. of those kinds mm-hmm. of things. It's a service, you know, you're networking to try to get business. Uh, you call a friend to do a favor. That's not particularly nefarious. Um, I think of uh, the man who would be king, right, Rudyard Kipling, and he, he recognizes the Freemason's ring, and so that's, you know, a brotherhood or a secret handshake and all of that. Um, there's something, I think, to Weisenhoff and the uh, Bavarian Illuminati. Um, I'm going to go ahead and stop me if you don't want to go here, but I think, um, you know, Trilateral Commission and Bilderberg Group, Club of Rome, um, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever goes on at Bohemian Grove, you know, whatever the levels or whatever you believe, there are elite people in, you know, in all the pillars. So politics, industry, journalism, so on and so forth, entertainment, and they do get together in these exclusive groups. Uh, not a lot of people know what goes on at these meetings and they decide for 8 billion people, <laughs> you know, the direction of things, how markets are going to yep. go and how finances are going to be developed. And, uh, you know, World War II is so deified as this moral high ground. Oh, we had to defeat Nazism. But if you look at the aftermath, the way Germany was divvied up, the way Nazi scientists were divvied up through Project Paperclip and who the Russians took. And uh, I have a real problem with Werner von Braun. Um, he was he was overseeing the V2 rocket program, and when workers didn't work hard enough, they were hung from a crane as a warning to all the other workers. And this guy became a superstar in America uh, because he had a brain that developed rockets, and that's what we wanted. So... Um, it occurred to me, Mark, years after I did it, that the uh, sort of multinational, nefarious shadow organization family that I've created for the Stanton Chronicles is the Raven Skulls, and it's yep, very man, it's similar. Yeah, it's very similar to Rothschild. Begins with an R, ends with a D, same amount of similar. You know what I mean? And and it was totally. Totally subconscious, but I am. You probably uh, know Robert Anton Wilson, right? Cosmic Trigger and all that, the the banking cabal no. and all that. Uh, oh, no, highly, not, uh, highly recommended. Highly, okay. highly recommended. I'll put that on my. Yeah, Robert list. Anton Wilson. Yeah, the Illuminati trilogy. Um, it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but a friend turned me on to it a couple decades ago, and you know, do we know the truth? I don't know, but you got me wound up now, so I'm I'm just going to say, you know, I do believe that the United States is a pseudo-democracy. Democracy, it's mostly a corporate oligarchy. Um, I think that the military-industrial intelligence complex has way too much power, and Eisenhower tried to warn us, and there's this fascinating speech that Kennedy gave early on in his presidency warning about those very things. You know, he picked up that mantle. And was he killed for it? You know, depending on who you ask, you get a different reason why they killed Kennedy. He was dangerous on a lot of levels. Dangerous on a lot of levels. And, you know, I'm portraying uh, Che Guevara right now in a a history education program. 
um, and that all of that was very complicated in the relationship with communism in Cuba and, and uh, what did Kennedy know about UFOs and is that why he was working with her? I mean, it's really gotten in in the 21st century, the Kennedy assassination is probably the thorniest uh, problem. But I do, at the end of the day, whether there are these nefarious groups, I do think that there's an elite, a very small sector of people who make decisions um and they're not that different than the gothic doctors they create they create monsters that they don't um the economic system is a monster i think we've seen it the past 14 months so again i don't know how far you want to go down this particular hole so i'll, no, I'll stop yeah. there for now no no, no I, I you know you do uh bring it up in uh your books and mm-hmm. uh, you know raven scald is you know, like a New World Order type. Yeah. And he just got kind of knows what every one of the the characters is doing. Um, has some kind of connections to him. Uh, he basically everyone is his, his puppet. It, you know, uh, that's interesting to see. That worked in to you know, nineteen, uh, you know, like nineteen thirty um, time period recreation. But you know, we know it, it, it's it's there. I I I think it's, it is. Um, yeah, and there's there's some really obscure. When I was revisiting Frankenstein, as I was writing the novel. Um, there was a lot I had missed. And um, Victor is, is funded by some people, right? He goes on a tour uh, and, and, and he, gets, he gets funding and he gets support by these nameless investors and doctors who are kind of um, curious about what he's doing. And I was like, oh, it's, it's right there. So all I have to do, all I have to do is link it. Um, and we do know that there are these people. I mean, look at and and I'm not I'm going to preface this by saying um, simply like people like Robert Bigelow and Elon Musk um, and Mark Zuckerberg. They have so much money um, now. Brandon Fugel with um, with Skinwalker Ranch. They have so much money that they can pursue these things that the average person can't pursue, whether it's going to Mars or figuring out what's going on Skinwalker Ranch and. I think there are these, you know, money is power, right? Economic influence equals political influence. Um, As, you know, Che Guevara says in my show, you know, we can't be free if we rely on foreign capital. So people who are independent enough um, that they can look into these things or or pursue these projects that we all had when we were kids. I, I like the whole Oak Island mystery. And uh, Rick Lagina is able to pursue his childhood dream, literally, because his brother made a ton of money in natural resources and and is able to fu- was able to fund his pursuits. So I don't think it's way out of line to think that, you know, the scientists and all are 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 funded in part by um, people with a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of influence who are either pushing the envelope to push ill the envelope or have genuine curiosity. And I think all those people that I named fall on different parts of the spectrum as far as that goes. 
Okay, and some of the gadgets that are used to um, bring to life from, you know, like you said uh, at the beginning of the show, like all these doctors are basically surrounded by death. Um, They're they're using the, you know, what you're calling the Ezekiel's wheel and work in the spear of destiny as well. But, you know, these are ideas that go back uh, dawn of time. What do you think that these um, enigmatic uh, devices were? That's a great question. So um, for, for me, let me just preface this with, over the course of this Stanton Chronicles, there are 12 objects of power or 12 ancient objects, as I call them, um, and most of them are biblical. So there's the Ezekiel wheel. There's also um, uh, Abraham staff, uh, Moses's, um, no, the Abraham blade. That's the knife that Abraham almost killed his son with. And uh, the Aaron staff, right, Moses's half-brother that turned into a snake and Dylan bomb, which, you know, she used to, to, um, to wash Jesus's feet. And there's the Sheba comb, um, the queen of Sheba, Solomon and all of that. But we have been as a species, uh, you mentioned the spear of destiny. Um, but there's also the Ark of the covenant, the Holy grail, all our major, uh, ancient adventure stories. Uh, you're an archeologist this pursuit of, of, of these objects, of these clues to the past, or that objects have this immense power. That's fascinating. I grew up, I grew up Roman Catholic. So every, every three feet in the Roman church is some kind of object, you know, whether it's the chalice or it's statues, the mm-hmm. stations of the cross, the rosary. I mean, it's ever, you, you know, you light candles, uh, all of these things, you have all these different. So I needed a through thread. And again, you know, we were talking about how did three Gothic doctors come to life. I was approached four years ago to write an audio drama um, when audio, everybody thought audio drama was going to be the next big media. Uh, there were a lot of people getting involved and Audi, Audible was getting involved. Stephen King's son, uh, Joe King, wrote uh, Lock and Key. Um, all these different things were happening and it was going to be the next big thing. So a guy came to me and said, you know, do you want to work in this medium? And I said, yes, please. That, that would be awesome. And I was a 12, 12 episode series. Um, it didn't happen for various reasons, but I decided to introduce one of these objects. So I had this material and, you know, pirates on a quest for gold and silver, eh, pirates on a quest to defeat the globe empire by finding these 12 ancient objects. Wow, that's really interesting. So uh-huh. to introduce them, it was it was too, you know, it was too good to pass up because the Ezekiel wheel is this powerful thing. Um, it's it's based a little bit, well, not only from, you know, the book of Ezekiel and what's described there, 
but also um, there's an ancient Greek sort of computer that was found, and I always have trouble pronouncing it, um, but it's very similar to that object, that ancient object with these gears and wheels and what is it for and what does it do. So that's that's how the Ezekiel will and all that came in. And, and anytime there's a um, – anytime you can take power and manifest it into an object that everyone is after – good things happen as far as storytelling because the stakes are so high. Um, and that's, you know, look at Hister. Uh, I mean, look at Hister. <laughs> um, that was a slip that's about... That's Nostradamus. Uh, Nostradamus, right, exactly. Um, but if you look at Hitler, uh, he was in pursuit of these objects, the Holy Grail and all these things that would, would gird his, his Reich. And it was so, you know, the Teutonic Knights, like the Knights of the round table again on a quest and he was sending people to Antarctica and Tibet and all these different places looking looking for these things. And did he have the spear? And the spear that's supposedly in the museum in Europe, is that a fake? You know, we're all fascinated. We're all fascinated by that. And if he had collected enough of these objects, would the Third Reich have succeeded? You know, it's a chilling, chilling thought. Yeah, and yeah, it it just seems like you, know, you do have a passage. In, uh, that's like about page one. Let me find it real fast. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have to come back to it. It's not the right page. Uh, but anyhow, um, it just seems that oh, there it is. May help if I actually went to the right one. Though its origin is uncertain, it is thought to have been crafted in the time of the carving of the Sphinx by <clears throat> a pair of Egyptian priests that they might better speak to Heru Kut, spirit of rising sun, of which the Resplendent Lion Man is the glorious embodiment. As you can imagine, such a powerful object was highly in demand. Ownership contested from everyone, from the Israelites to the Mesopotamians. Um, it, it just seems like as you give us, you know, Tie all these threads together. Uh, you know, we have you know, just kind of touched on Sherlock Holmes. You know, maybe we can get into uh, you know, the, uh, Jack the Ripper type uh, information you have in the book. You, you have just a little bit of everyone in uh, your book, um, and all these you know, the Ezekiel's wheel to. Uh, Bring life to uh, you know, uh, you know the lifelet, you know whatever uh, cause <clears throat> what's uh, regeneration or something. Um, mm -hmm. in, in the passage I read, it, it, it just seems like uh, Raven Skull was just reiterating that br 
wanting to keep people <clears throat> alive has just been part of the human condition since people were able to uh, write it down. You get the bones that reassemble in the Old Testament. Everybody has the thoughts of fly, you know, wanting to fly. It's just like one of those, you know, you're tapping into those Uh, things that everyone thinks about from from time to time. You get these little flashes of, yeah, I wish I could do that, you know, type type fantasy thoughts. Yeah, and we're, I say we, I'm not, but but by and large, people are so afraid of death, right? The finality, the uncertainty, Um the religious dogma of heaven and hell and, uh, you know, nirvana and purgatory and, and, you know, all these different places. And, um, as, as, as you know, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to transition at some point to this being a paranormal investigator and married to, um, and co-host with a psychic medium who's very talented. Um, we look at it from a different, we look at it from a different point of view but it's absolutely fascinating to people, no matter what's, what side you on, you're on um, this idea of death and overcoming death. And, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, we fly in our dreams because we're no longer trapped in our body. So I think all of these mythologies and every culture has their mystery religions. Every culture has their secret societies and their, their um, you know, their ascended masters and their secret knowledge and, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, in the first book, Minor Confessions of an Angel Falling Upward, is the story of a planner forthright, this fallen angel, uh, who makes an appearance a couple of times in Three Gothic Doctors. And also then in Canon and the Quill, and I'll continue his story as well. He's an interesting character, this idea of the fallen angel, which is um, uh, people are wondering, like the the Nephilim, and uh aliens are they really just fallen angels it's become it's become part of the dialogue in the paranormal world right so um right. Here but this overcoming death yeah th- this overcoming death defying god um flying right angels don't really have wings they're light beings but this romantic conceptualization of them with with wings and um you know even carlos castaneda did i re- really become the bird and Don Juan, you know, says, if you think you became the bird, you became the bird. So the mystery religions as being this initiation uh, in every culture is, um, yeah, and, and made manifest by these sacred objects that sort of bind the bind the tribe together. Okay. So you mentioned <clears throat> at some part we'll transition so um, you have some mirror scenes in your book, mm-hmm. uh, pretty uh, creepy, revealing. Um, how do the mirror scenes re- reflect 
no, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> your work in uh, uh, you know the paranormal research. You know what have you learned? You know about uh, interdimensional travel or you know, it's kind of like some ambiguous type question. <laughs> No, uh, no, actually, go from the it's, it's very clear. Yeah, um, so, so mirrors are <laughs> far from, far from, give yourself credit. Um, no, mirrors, mirrors are a key part of the work. Uh, Tanya and I, when we get called into a case, if, you know, one of the first questions we ever ask is, uh, do you have two mirrors facing each other? Or if you're having real problems sleeping and you feel like there's shadow people watching you, do you have a mirror in your bedroom? first step cover that mirror at night or take it out of there and it will oftentimes solve the problem um our mentor tanya and i our mentor uh, for 11 years before she passed was rosemary ellen guiley who was an expert on scrying mirrors and she created them so one of the 12 ancient objects in in the stanton chronicles uh and it's really a key one is this obsidian mirror, this polished obsidian mirror. Um, when Tanya and I investigated the web library, which resulted in our book, Watch Out for the Hallway, we spent 150 hours in there over 75 nights over two years. And the architecture had two windows facing each other, which were acting like mirrors. Uh, we brought up Nostradamus, I thought inadvertently, but it was probably a good setup he would look into a bowl of water and get his mm -hmm. um, get his revelations. So water, any kind of polished surface. Uh, the Egyptians had polished uh, mirrors that were used to light things. Uh, mirrors are are super important. Uh, windows into the you know look at yourself in the reflection. Shakespeare, all the great thinkers thought about mirrors. But but mirrors are for whatever reason portals into other worlds, other dimensions, whether they're natural or it's an actual physical mirror. Um, Tanya and I have been aware of mirrors that are uh, have entities inside of them. A couple of years ago, we had a friend who was dealing with that. There seemed to be a hat person that was living inside this mirror. And when people looked into it, newest people looked into it and they saw this hat person uh, looking back at them from this mirror. It's frightening. But, you know, I, I even, it occurred to me, um, you know, Sleeping Beauty, right? The Wicked Witch looking in the mirror and all of right. that. Who's the fairest of them all and all that. So so, so mirrors are, are classic. And um, so if you're having a problem with a haunting, uh, we had one. We had a case that's in Roommates from Beyond, How to Live in a Haunted Home, which came out in October. One of the cases... They, the people had these two beautiful built-in fireplaces that faced each other, and they had mirrors over them that faced each other. And those mirrors were being used for these very um, these dark entities. I don't like to use the word demon, but there are non-human entities that feed on uh, anger, dissension, fear, anxiety, and I just call them dark entities, but certainly jinn. Uh, demons, both of which are religious terms, right? One for the Middle East, one for, um, you know, more more Christian, Judeo-Christian. Uh, shadow people, hat people, different 
different creatures like that race um, can come in and out through these mirrors. So as we were working this case, which had resulted in a man in great health having a heart attack and almost dying, uh, two of his cats dying, and his other two cats when we arrived on scene were both very sick and were dying. Cats are very attuned to uh, to the to the other side. They spend most of their um, their brain time in alpha state, so they're they're heightened and alert. So pets become a threat uh, to these entities. We covered one of the mirrors in the fireplace, and it greatly diminished the activity. Uh, measuring the electromagnetic activity, uh, we watched it diminish by covering the mirror and then keeping the mirror covered, and then saging and Palo Santo and doing all those kinds of cleansing uh, rituals. But they definitely can be doorways. They definitely can be passages. Um, and I think that they exist in nature, too, what we call portals. Uh, work as sort of natural mirror sort of passages. I, ha I don't have all that worked out yet. It's complex. But, yeah, so mirrors as a way to look into the future, to look into the past, to look into other dimensions and create doorways. I think there's something very, very real and important to that idea. Yeah, uh, you also get... Um, in the name of the rose, a mirror. That's yeah. Set in, well, that's a twentieth century novel set in thirteen uh, twenties, I think thirteen thirties. Oh, anyhow, um, yeah. There's yeah, and. With examples uh, like uh, the name of the rose, you, you also get um, uh, like the House of the Seven Gables, <clears throat> uh, Christmas Carol, which seems to be covering interdimensional travel, some Washington Irving. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, Tam O'Shanter. It, it just it seems like a, a lot of these Victorian authors really uh, seem to be aware of the examples that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And oh, uh, they may have seen it as uh, you know this this is uh you know the, the mirror portal uh theme is you know that's real you know they, they really believed it uh it it just seems like uh 120 30 years later um you know, people with other you know gadgets and you know these new science science uh, techniques are confirming what they already knew. That's a, like that's, John, you know that. Yes, Keel. Uh, no, that. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. Oh, I was like, yeah. I think uh, Keel has a little bit of that in 
the Mothman prophecies. I'm not sure about his other books, but it, it's um, it, it, it's just very interesting. Um, you know, what what do you are, are you finding that to be true with all these uh, spirit boxes and things you use on your paranormal expeditions? Yeah, and we're, you know, the trend is a way for, for a lot of researchers to be getting away from the electronic device. You know, I'm lucky enough to to um, to investigate, to live with, to co-host and co-author with uh, a very talented psychic medium. Um, and um, so we use the electronics not as a primary, but more of a collaborative. I like to triangulate data. So, you know, what are the mediums and sensitives getting? What does the history and the case study tell us? What does the electronic? Um, but, of course, these are sentient, intelligent beings. There's a trickster element oftentimes, whether for, you know, for light or dark. There's a um, We've met plenty of spirits and ghosts who are, you know, comical but also sarcastic and, uh, you know, have great, you know, Oscar Wilde level wits. Um, but, uh, so yes, and using the equipment, it's corroborating and I'm going backwards. Oftentimes, um, you know, as you're building, getting, you know, writing books, Tanya and I are writing a big grant now. We're trying to get a grant to, uh, to create an online, um, research and training center for the paranormal, um, to be able to get a, a, a van and travel around, do presentations, do take cases you know, do investigations, all that kind of, is what we'd like to do over the next two, three years. I'm going backwards in time um, and reading the literature backwards, which is what I often do, right? I started with Jim Morrison. He talks about Baudelaire. Oh, I got to talk about Baudelaire. Baudelaire talks about uh, Keats and Shelley and Lord Byron right. and, you know, your work all the way backwards. Well, when you get to um, Arthur Conan Doyle and the spiritualist movement, um you know, uh, late 1800s, well, post-Civil War, late 1800s is when they really started cataloging it all. Uh, the the Royal, um, the, the Society for Psychical Research in America, founded by William James, right? The father of American psychology. All kinds of luminaries, uh, Pulitzer, uh, not Pulitzer, uh, Nobel Prize winners, uh, Charles Roulet and people like that in England. They had it figured out. They had it figured out. They were doing these complicated experiments. They were uh, creating communication. Um, you know, was Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell and all trying to raise the dead with their communication devices? We don't know, right? You hear different things. But um, but there was certainly a fascination with these ideas and communication, seances, cabinets, uh, ectoplasm, all this kind of stuff. So I just read Conan Doyle's uh, Land of Mist, which is the third Professor Challenger book, but it's really 1926. Um, Conan Doyle's lost a nephew. He's lost a son in World War II. He's trying to find answers. Houdini's trying to debunk things. And he writes this book, which is basically a handbook of the spiritualist movement. And you look at it and you go, all of this is going on today. They had it figured out. They had it figured out a hundred years ago. You know, Conan Doyle says he had a hundred books on his shelf in 1920 having to do with these things. 
So I agree with you. It was kind of all there, and it showed up in the literature, just like I crossed the bridge between fact and fiction in my work. It's a very thin veil. Um, it's all about the exaggeration, you know, in the fiction. That's all it is, is how you exaggerate it. Um, yeah, there's definitely something to it. And I think the more we start getting back to that, so like I was saying, we're getting away from the electronics and getting more like into dousing rods and things like that. Um, intuition, oh, okay. all those kinds of things. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's the direction we're going in. And we we were just, um, we just did the Southwest Pennsylvania um, Haunted Con at the Green County Historical Society, which is a very, very haunted building. And Tanya and I have uh, investigated there many times and wrote about it in Roommates from Beyond. And some of our colleagues are saying the same things. I go in with a tape recorder, a pad, a pencil, my dousing rods, my my intuition, and um, it's sometimes, oftentimes, more reliable data than what you're getting from the electronics, although they do have their place, too. Oh. Well, okay. Uh, that's interesting to learn that there's a move away from technology. You would think it would be the other way around. Yeah, and it's huh. a, it's a fairly small segment. Um, some of it is pushback from, you know, the TV way of assembling a team that looks somewhere between a biker gang and a rock band, <laughs> you know, go into places <laughs> to gather data. That's not Tanya and I's philosophy at all. Um, gathering data, Rosemary Ellen Guiley called that the hamster wheel of ghost hunting. And Tanya and I really don't like the phrase ghost hunting any more than you would witch hunt or big game hunt. Um, you know, um, we've written the first Paranormal Bill of Rights because yep. these are sentient beings. These are intelligent. They grow. They change. We learn that at the Webb Memorial Library. Um, and we can't poke and prod. Well, this circles us back. We can't be like the Gothic doctors. We cannot use ghosts and spirits as a means to an end. To, oh, I captured the the EVP. Oh, I captured the goat. You know, the Holy Grail is I captured a spectral being on tape. Uh, I'm at the top of my field and my work is done. Uh, Tanya and I are trying to be mediators, right? That's what a medium is, a mediator between two worlds to, um, to uh, you know, what is the story? What do they want? How do the living um, juice a haunting? through their own personalities and their own interfamilial dynamics? How does the land come into play? There's a ton of research that has nothing to do with turning on cameras and REM pods. And, you know, I think the fancier the spirit box, the less reliable it is. And I'm very skeptical of the digital ones, the digital apps, because what's the science behind it? What's the mechanism behind it? Um, it's much harder to – spirit boxes are hard enough to try to puzzle out what's the mechanism that you'll get communication. So I would say it's a small part, and I think anytime there's a really big movement, there's always going to be a pullback from a certain segment of people who say, you know, that's, that's 
that's not our way of doing things. Um, so we have to codify and strengthen and be really clear about why we're doing things the way we're doing things. So, so um, I just wanted to, to clear that. I don't think there's a huge movement away from the technology, but amongst some of our colleagues, we are seeing that happen. Okay. Well, I'm sure some of the listeners would uh, you know, maybe be interested in uh, pursuing something you know, more you know, back to basics type of philosophy. Yeah. It's, I, I'm, I'm glad you had a chance to dis, uh, share that with us. Uh, Great, thanks. And yeah, you mentioned uh, being witty, like Oscar Wilde. Um, yeah, I probably pro, you know I was listening to some of the other Victorian uh, literature, uh, ghost literature, Gothic. Um, yeah, I, I just. Uh, Omitted him for, for no. You know, I, probably, you know, I probably should have mentioned, mentioned him. Um, you know, with uh, you know, portrait of Dorian Gray. D- d- does something like that novel fit into any of the type of uh, research that is being that you've done that's being done by someone else? Like you know. Steve, our good buddy Steve. I I think so. I I use Dorian Gray um, as source material for part of Minor Confessions of an Angel Falling Upward. So I'm uh, fascinated by that story. It's a brilliant concept. It, it's sort of it using really a painting. Yeah, it's kind of using a painting the same way that Jekyll uses Mr. Hyde, right? I'm going to take all my evil. I'm going to put all my bad deeds. I'm going to put it on on the painting, which I could never look at, which I could never look in the eye. And I think that Jekyll, if he had his druthers, um, you know, there's some powerful scenes in Three Gothic Doctors where uh, Hyde can only be seen through the mirror. So you have to be brave enough to look at yourself, right? Everyone from, and and I know sometimes it's verboten to talk about him anymore, but, um, you know, from Michael Jackson, you know, looking at the man in the mirror and, the, you know, all of those different metaphors, holding a mirror up to nature, as Shakespeare said, all those different things. Um, I think the picture of Dorian Gray, can we imbue an object with our natural evil? I think that there are some dark magicians, uh, some witchcraft movements and things like that that are more nefarious where they try to do those things. Uh, I think also light, light witches and paganism and all of that, you, you imbue an object, whether it's a ring or it's an athame or it's a chalice or a bowl of, you know, you imbue it with energy, spiritual power. Um, you know, energy is energy. It's all in your intent. So you bring up a great point. I think the portrait of Dorian Gray is very instructive for these kinds of things. And and again, if I remember correctly, because it's been a while, um, there are people who try to, to pull him from his path, and he doesn't want to listen. 
um, and you go down this right. path of darkness. I love, um, you know, Belasco in um, in uh, Hell House, right? Uh, Richard Matheson's story, and I love okay. the movie too. It's Roddy Roddy McDowell, but these guys oh, yeah. that are so evil and so decadent. Um, that they sort of lose touch with reality and they're chasing the next high and the, and the next uh, atrocity and the next decadency. I love Ouroboros, um, Maldoror. Uh, Minor Confessions owes a lot to that. Even um, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, you know, the corruption of the human being. So so. I thought that's this is brilliant that you brought up Dorian Gray because that's a that's a great piece for that whole subject. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, you mentioned Oscars. Like, I, I don't know. You know. I just overlooked it. I should should I should should have known better. But it it really does. It, it is one of those novels and. I had to read in high school. I think I covered it in college again, but it's really a, a fascinating subject, and it does fit in with all the other Victorian literature that we've been covering. Uh, Mary Shelley. Uh, Blake, oh, yeah, just all the authors you know, from the last uh, 200 years uh, uh, did was create a bunch of prototype um, character, you know, these mad scientist types. But there, there's such a, a deeper level to the characters uh, and you've mentioned several times about um, uh, such and su- such a book is a, a cautionary tale yeah, th- these gothic uh, n- novels really seem to be uh, tantalizing us with possibilities but they also say that you know once we get to the edge we kind of take a peek over but come back not go over the edge and I think that's what what You know, from you know, so that, you know, I've read you know, a lot of the big, the, you know, the big name um, gothic ones. Yeah, that seems to be one of the major themes, and you know, it goes it would be carried on to uh, the doors as well, since you know we already did bring them up. Break on mm-hmm. through the other side. Right, right. It occurred to me so, while we were talking, and we're we're kind of surveying all this literature. Um, 
it's the idea of the Ubermensch, right? The Superman um, yeah. from Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. And, of course, uh, Morrison was reading those guys. And uh, Ravenskald or um, if there are uh, Illuminati or New World Order, it's where the laws of man no longer apply to me. I bend nature to my will. And it sort of ties everything we've been talking together almost the last two hours really together is that idea. And it was Nietzsche who said, who also, you know, explored the idea of the Ubermensch, um, Dostoevsky and Crime and Punishment uh, yeah. really tackles that. Um, when you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back at you. So there's a price to be paid. And it's where we got, I remember when we were in the web, uh, we had um, some very dark experiences with some very dark entities, um, mostly human, but very angry uh, with a trickster. And our daughter, Jolie, who's a, who's a very talented psychic medium, she's 21 now. She was 17, 18 when we were going into the web library. Well, 17. And I couldn't see these beings. She could see them. I couldn't see them, so I was. Oh, I'll, I'll, it'll be fine. I'm gonna. I'm gonna face it. Yes, my intuitive system is lighting up. The equipment is lighting up. We're being told to, to you know, to stay away or whatever. But I want to pursue this, and it's a little bit of that Ubermensch. Like bad things aren't going to happen to me. They maybe happen to other people, and it's it's really interesting how quickly we can get pushed into that position where we're staring into the abyss um, without even realizing we're doing it because it's the end justify the means. It's, it's okay. I have to do this for the betterment of humanity, for the betterment of society, for the betterment of my family. In the pursuit of knowledge, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Um, so, so literature is a, great, is a great way to reach people without being dogmatic, without being didactic, um, simply letting the story unfold and let people make their own conclusions. Okay, and since we, you know, we're down about 15 minutes left, um, you know, we've mm -hmm. covered these great uh, gothic doctors, uh, but it's in your watch out for the hallway, um, you know, you do have a doctor. They were real people uh, who who were had associations with the web library. Uh, they're they're the doctors who had offices on what uh, it was the ground floor of the home before the eventual conversion to the, the library. Um, exactly right. Uh, 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 um, okay. When we had Willie Hassel on at the beginning of the um, year, uh, he, he was covering the uh, – uh, the nickname for the ship was the uh, Sea Witch. Um, it, it, it seems like the, the uh, doctors on the uh, who, who occupied 
the building it ha- had their practice there. You know, they were doing some yeah. so, some stuff there. And, and with the Sea Witch um, story, that was a, a naval hospital that um, rescued people from a uh, Eastern Mediterranean earthquake. Do you have an opinion on why you know, these doctors who are trying to do uh, you know, good, good deeds for you know, to, to save lives and uh, improve humanity? Why they're uh, uh, play work places were would eventually become haunted. I think that's yeah. I, I've always I, I I'm just you know kind of doing my usual rambles about things. I don't I don't know if there's a no, real question uh, in there. Maybe you could yeah no um yeah oh yeah for sure no it's 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 there clearly. So the Webb Memorial Library um the the property was originally owned um by the Thompson family. And it was sold to Earl Webb, uh, where he built this two-story building, which was multifunctional. And down on the first floor, there were two doctor's offices. Um, one was Dr. Thompson, and the other one was uh, Dr. Benjamin Royal. Dr. Benjamin Royal uh, lobbied and successfully had a hospital built across from the library, which came into play with the haunting and all that kind of stuff. He was very, very passionate. He does not reside in the Webb Library, although um, his ghost did appear to Tanya in a cemetery. She was looking for Dr. Thompson's tomb, and she saw a man, and we had a picture of Dr. Benjamin Royal, and it was him. He was pointing to the other side of the cemetery, and she went there. Yeah, I don't. I I think this is in the book, but I I can't recall. She went there, and it was his grave. So he was like, even though I'm not at the Web Library anymore, please don't forget about me. And we would always tell his story because he he used the Web for triage for um, German U-boats in in the early days of World War uh, Two. Uh, 42 into 43, sunk 350 ships off the coast of North Carolina. Uh, not too many people know that. I didn't know that till I moved down there and started researching it. And a lot of them were oil tankers coming out of uh, Moorhead City, the big deep water port there. So these are horrible burn victims. And he never lost a burn victim, although his son, Dr. Royal, uh, did die from burns suffered in World War II. So it's kind of tragic that he saved all these young people, but his son succumbed. So we, so we had several hauntings in the web um, where these burn victims were showing up, very afraid to go into the light, in immense amount of pain, and we couldn't figure out why. So we realized that the web library was used as a triage when the hospital was full. And they would bring in uh, dozens of these young men because an, an oil tanker was uh, attacked by a German U-boat. Um, so that's Dr. Royal's story. Dr. Thompson still resides in the Webb Library. He looks after the spirits and ghosts of the children who are still in there. There's about a half a dozen of them. And when we would go in there, uh, there was a seat near where he would um, stand by uh, a fireplace. And sometimes you would smell his cherry pipe tobacco. 
people would sense him. They would walk into the room and they'd say, I think there's someone over there. Yes, that's, you know, that's Dr. Thompson. And if you sat in a certain seat, Dr. Thompson, uh, using Tanya as the mediator, as the medium, would dispense advice. And it was uh, sometimes medical advice. It was uh, take two pills and call me in the morning or your sunburn is quite bad. You really should be hydrating um, and put some mallow on that. Or really interesting things like, hey, you really should um, get that gas tank. Person, does this mean anything to you? Oh, yeah, I'm restoring an old MG, and the, the gas tank really does need replacing. Or uh, two two boys, he was uh, he was making like a steering wheel motion with his hand, and he was saying, make oh. sure they slow down. And Tanya said to the person, what does this mean to you? And they said, oh, we were driving around my, our grandfather's uh, or our relative's uh, golf cart way too fast yet last night, and they were telling us to slow down. So really uncanny things. One girl was there, and he was like, your hair looked beautiful. And it was like, what is that? What is Dr. Thompson saying? And the mother had done the daughter's hair for prom, and the daughter hated how her hair looked. Um, but Dr. Thompson was telling that her hair looked or, you know, stay in school, or you think you want to quit the swimming team, but don't. And we had never met these people before. There was no way that Tanya could know these things about them. So so in the book, there's this whole list of communications from Dr. Thompson. But he would leave. Sometimes he wouldn't be there for weeks at a time. And when he came back, he would show us these fish that he caught. So we learned a lot from Dr. Thompson. He was one of the first is one of the first spirits that we met. He's not trapped at the library. He's happy to be there. And I think, you know, a small town doctor or a very committed doctor or a doctor that works on a hospital ship, their energy is so committed to helping people, that self-sacrifice and that need to help, that they don't want to give that up just because they're dead. You know, maybe that kind of help isn't needed on the other side but it's still very much as needed here. And um, so that's my theory of why I think, you know, doctors and, and then, you, you know, hospitals and, and, and places. There was a residual haunting of a woman all in black. When people sat in the chair where she was, they would quickly be overcome with emotion. And that was, um, we're guessing, someone who got very bad news about either herself or someone very close to her from one of the two doctors and her grief was so immense that it created an energetic imprint on the space, which is what a residual halting really is. Okay. And, uh, you know, speaking of residual hauntings, um, you have a, a upcoming show on the queen Mary and yeah. you, know, you mentioned that you, uh, U-boats, and you know, we mentioned Willie's um, Sea Witch documentary and his, his uh, talk with us. Um, I have an interest in these like ocean settings. Um, uh, I'm, I'm weird. I like that one uh, Washington Irving uh, story with the uh, the the little island. Um, off the coast, and there's a, a haunted mansion there. But it, it, anyhow, um, not everything is a haunted house. It, it, you get these uh, uh, 
ocean settings. Uh, is there something about the Queen Mary, the ocean, that figures into some of these hauntings? I definitely think so. We're actually, Nicole Strickland, who's written three books on the Haunted Queen Mary, uh, is going to be our guest on Into the Outer Realms Thursday night. Um, and then we're going to be guests on her show right after, which is kind of neat that we uh, we switched like that. But, um, you know, water plays an immense part. Uh, water is a great conductor. Water is a great portal. It's another version of a mirror. Uh, it holds memory. It's mysterious. It's a uh, it's a metaphor for the subconscious. So I think there's that. Um, you know, we're going to talk with Nicole because she really is the expert. And I don't use that word expert. I don't use it as far as Tanya and I, but Nicole very much is an expert on the history and the hauntings of the RMS Queen Mary. Uh, is it the architecture? Is it the love that went into it? Is it the memories there? Uh, of course, Titanic is probably the most famous ship of right. all. And uh, I got to think that those waters are haunted, that that wreckage is haunted um, because of the fear and the anxiety and the loss and the uncertainty. And um, so I think that water, you know, we're mostly water. The earth is mostly water. Um it it holds so much psychic power water that I'm not surprised that ships are, you know, there's everything from the Flying Dutchman and, of course, the right. Pirates of the Caribbean. There's, you know, the ships and there's Davy Jones and all these nautical superstitions. The Blackbeard ship, uh, I apologize for that motorcycle going past there. Um, that's life here in eastern Ohio. And uh, <laughs> so... Um, we're I'm uh, in the ancient Maryland. Um, yeah, all of these, all of these different things, and these ships showing up at different places at different times, and people see them. There's a legend that Blackbeard's ship shows up, but you can only see the blue light from the uh, from the stern lantern. But it shows up every November off of Ocracoke, you know, where he was killed. Uh, all these great maritime haunting legends are are extremely fascinating. I think it's because of the psychic power of water. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. In in last about four minutes, uh, how how are people able to watch your interview on the haunting of the Queen Mary? Yeah. So probably the easiest way is to watch it on Facebook, the Into the Outer Realms page. We broadcast through Streamyard. We also. Um, broadcast to my YouTube channel. So if people want to watch it on YouTube, they can do that as well, either live or after the fact uh, at the Joey Medea, J-O-E-Y, M-A-D-I-A uh, YouTube page. Again, it's Into the Outer Realms for Facebook. And uh, we stream live, and then they're up there archived forever. People can check it out. But uh, Nicole has a tremendous, tremendous passion uh, for the RMS. Queen Mary, which I read all three of her books uh, leading up to the interview, and it's fascinating. Whether you're into the paranormal or not, just the history history of that ship is pretty amazing. Okay, and when when's your next uh, Red Thread Collective 
broadcast. July 22nd, and we're doing Antarctica. So for the audience, the Red Thread Collective, we call them uh, fringe theories. Uh, conspiracy theory has gotten a really dirty word, but a conspiracy is more than one person getting together to do something, and a theory is just that. So why it has gotten such a bad rap um, as far as the language of it, um, I'm not really sure, but we call them fringe theories. So we have a team of people, the Red Threaders or the Red Thread Collective, who spend months looking at a subject, um, and we just come together to compare notes and to share tidbits. And at the end, we usually say, yay or nay, what do you think? There's something to this or not something to it. Um, so we're not out to debunk anything. We're not out to necessarily uh, push uh, fringe theories on anybody, but there are certain subjects you mentioned. We did uh, Denver the Airport, Den and we paired it with yeah. the Georgia Guidestones, and then we looked at um, Nevada and New Mexico, Area 51, and Groom Lake, and S4, and Bob Lazar, and Roswell, and uh, Janet Air Airlines, all that different kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's a really good project. With I have to give a plug to our mutual buddy, uh, Craig Ansel from Three Beards Podcast. Um, he's one of the one of my core researchers that I work with. And, uh, yeah, so that's July Emily. 22nd. Yes, Emily yeah. and Devin, Emily yep. Mittermeier and, and Devin uh, McGuigan. And uh, we're introducing some new people over the next couple months who have expressed interest in joining the team and are, are credible researchers with a lot of integrity. So, uh, yeah, we'll be debuting some new people, too. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, Joey, we're down to uh, 50 seconds. Uh, wow. Uh, where do people get your books? And then we'll have to call it an evening. And I just want to thank you for being a wonderful guest. Oh, thank you. It's been a great two hours, and you, you really get me to speak my secret truth, so good for you on that. Um, <laughs> I guess I, we're going to get complaints, but um, no, you can get all of the books on uh, fiction and nonfiction. You can get them on Amazon, um, and please always, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, under Joey Medea. Love to hear from people, so so definitely reach out and let's connect, and yeah, thank you, Mark, so much. It's always a joy. Yeah, you know, it, it, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Is a very quick two hours. Okay, Barbara, uh, let's uh, wrap it up for the week, and we'll see everyone next week. Thank you. <laughs>